Hello, you've reached season two of voicemails from history. You have one new message. Zainab said Kearney was not a hardened soldier. The 26-year-old joined the all-female Kurdish-led Women's Protection Units, known as the YPJ, just nine months ago. Since ISIS was largely defeated in Syria back in 2019, daily combat had ceased, so said Kearney had spent most of her time at her base in Tel Tamuk in northeast Syria, making tea for the other female fighters or reading their fortunes from leftover coffee grounds. But at night, one of the women always stayed awake to listen for the buzz of drones in the sky from their main adversary, Turkey. Said Kearney had said she never planned to join a militia, but that living in a country with increasing conflict and a growing occupation by Turkey had made it a necessity. She said, It's very difficult to see your country occupied by someone else. She wore utilitarian clothing and liked to carry her Kalashnikov slung over her shoulder. She walked with a limp from an injury she'd gotten during training, but her earnest, often goofy manner betrayed any sense of toughness. However, she never saw battle. On September 1st, Said Kearney was killed by a Turkish drone strike whilst making tea in Tel Temel. The strike was part of a recent wave of Turkish attacks on Kurdish forces that have killed at least a dozen civilians in Iraq and Syria, as well as high-level militia members. Okay, so I took this voicemail piece from a foreign policy article written by the journalist uh, Elizabeth Flack, who was documenting the situation in North Syria post-2016. Um, currently, Turkey has been launching offensives on North Syria against the Kurdish force known as the YPJ. Turkey believes the YPJ is an extension of the PKK, which is an insurgent organisation that, to put very mildly, has had an extremely rocky relationship with the Turkish state. Now, if you're not aware of the PKK and Turkey just yet, that's fine. Um, but just as sort of an intro, you could say that these two different entities have parallels with the British state in the late 19th and early 20th century when they were facing attacks and reprisals by Sinn Féin, the Irish Republican and Nationalist organisation. In the present day, the Kurds are a stateless ethnic group who have since the collapse of the Ottoman Empire at least, have advocated for and fought for self-rule. The Kurds have gained a lot of media traction since 2003 in the wake of the US invasion of Iraq. The formation of an autonomous regional government in Iraq, known as the KRG, has since gained more and more attention. The horrors of the 1988 Halabja genocide gained recognition by the UK Parliament in 2013. In 2017, a Kurdish independence referendum incurred the wrath of Ankara, Tehran and Baghdad. When Trump pulled American forces out of Syria in October 2019, we witnessed the Americans renegading on their alliance with the Kurds for what was the eighth or ninth time. One article in The Intercept ran the headline, quote, Nothing in this world is certain except for death, taxes and America betraying the Kurds. We watch as Kurdish people and politicians attempt to navigate the extreme complexities of the politics of the Middle East all the while dealing with their own domestic issues. Slowly, more and more people are realising how central the role of Kurds are for the peace and stability of this area. To not consider the Kurdish question when discussing the Middle East is to be blindfolded. There's a term coined by Boris James, who is a historian who's done a bit of work on medieval Kurds, who describes them as having, having had a trend 
of in-betweenness, that the Kurdish position in the Middle East has always been a matter of betweenness with other groups on major events. This term has worked both to their benefit and also works to their detriment. It depends on our outlook, but also the context. And we'll come back to this idea as we go through season two. Now, before I go any further, I just want to stress um, that I'm trying to be as nonpartisan in my outlook and sources for this episode in particular. Um, so I'll be mentioning a number of books and articles and historians that I've researched, which is why I didn't want to put down a specific author in the title. By nonpartisan, I don't mean to imply naively that I have no bias or that I have no ideas of my own, politically speaking, but rather that I don't openly or unconditionally support the range of movements out there, um, as in the Kurdish ones. I have respect for a lot of them, as well as many criticisms. The reason I'm making a disclaimer for just this episode is because A, I've tried to look through a range of both Kurdish and non-Kurdish scholarship, but also because of how fraught the intersection between politics and history is. It's quite a fine line. Um, history has been used since time immemorial for people and societies to make a name for themselves, to construct meaning in their lives, and to essentially gain the upper hand. And that's neither wrong, um, wrong or right, objectively speaking, it just is what it is. So, who are the Kurds? The Kurds are one of the Middle East's ethno-linguistic groups, with an estimated population of around 50 million. That's a rough um, figure, by the way. Um, there's never been a comprehensive census of the Kurds, so all the figures range from about 30 to 50. Now, they're spread across southeastern Turkey, um, which is called Bakur, North Kurdistan. There's Kurds in Iran, Western Iran, which we call Rojhalat. There's Kurds in Southern Iraq, which we call Bashur, and Northeastern Syria, which is known as Rojava. They are a largely Sunni Muslim group with important significant religious groups, such as Christians, Yazidis, and Elazis, and of course there's also Shia Muslims among them as well. It's also important just to add that there's also a significant and growing proportion of Kurds who do not subscribe to any religion. The Kurdish language has a range of dialects owing to the vast geography that they're spread out over. They have a strong history of tribal kinships and have a reputation for being both nomadic and sedentary or known as mountainous peoples. Um, the Kurds are one group in this area of the Middle East historically and in the present they have merged clashed and fought, or intermingled with Arabs, Persians, Turks, Assyrians, Armenians, and Azeris. So historically, Kurdistan has been a diverse swathe of land at the crossroads of the Middle East. The Kurds occupy a sort of crescent-shaped region, stretching from the Kut Mountains in northwest Syria, um, as well as the region known as Afrin, and also cities such as Kobani, um, Tel Abyog, which Kurds call Girdisbi and Rasidain, which the Kurds call Serkani. The Kurds also named the city of Qamishlu as the new capital of Rojava. By 2016, the YPD, short for People's Protection Unit, were in control of this region, especially of Afrin. They had also liberated Kobani from ISIS with the help of the Peshmerga, who owed the Kurdish soldiers from Iraq and US air support. The name Rojava started to make rounds and soon was a strong, disciplined, um, successful and ideologically driven Kurdish military group, Turkey in the north started to panic. 
Erdogan and the EK party launched its first large-scale offensive into Rojava, rooting out the Kurds with a tireless energy. The YPD has since then been defending its territory, and compared to the might of Turkey, who is a NATO member, they did and continue to do quite well under such unfair and cruel uh, Turkish state decisions. If we head more eastern, we arrive um, at southern Kurdistan in Iraq, which we call Bashur. Um, the Kurds here occupy the cities of Kirkuk, Khanaqin, Kifri, um, Slimani, Hawlir, and then the region of Hauraman, which is a mountainous region between Iraq and Iran that straddles the Zagros Mountains. This year, actually, UNESCO granted Hauraman as um, having a protected heritage site status owing to its rich history and biodiversity. Hauraman is occupied by the largest Kurdish tribe um, in this region called the Jaff, um, who speak Sorani and are predominantly Shafi'i Muslims. The Kurdish king, Muhammad Pasha Jaff, was bestowed the title of Pasha by the Ottomans in the 1800s when they struck an alliance with the Ottomans and since then and before, the Jaff have played important roles for the Kurds since 1115. My grandfather um, was from this region, his descendants and mine are the Jaff. Over time, many of them travelled and settled in other areas or towns like Halabja, Sina, Kirmansha and Slimani. Um, Slimani being my family home currently. Lastly, we have Iran, um, which is called Rojhawat, which is comprised of the major cities of Sina, Kirmansha and Saqaz. To the north is the region of Urmia, another Kurdish city, although that is now contested um, because of the changing demographics to include Azerbaijanis as well. And then there's one other region to mention called Luristan, which is a province in western Iran, now the Lur people have a complicated written history. They are at times described as being ethnically different um, from the Kurds, and they also have their own well, sort of yeah, it's their own language called the Luri language. However, many of them identify as being Kurdish and actually describe Luri as being a dialect of Kurdish. Now the Lurs are predominantly Shia Muslims and that layer makes their relationship with um, Iran more complicated because religiously they might agree but ethnically the Iranians, um, well at least the Iranian state, persecutes and mistreats them. Moreover, there was a group of Kurds called the Thales who speak a sub-dialect of Luri and then beginning in the 19th century many of them moved westwards into um, Kurdistan, Iraq um, they flourished there as traders and became very wealthy, especially in Baghdad. Now, when the Ba'athists came to power in Iraq under Saddam Hussein in the 1970s, they saw the Thales um, as being threats to their, to their power, and so they were targeted. Um, sources estimate that around 70,000 Thali Kurds were displaced by 1971. Now, whilst this oppression undoubtedly had roots in Iraqi-Iranian rivalry at the time, the role of their Kurdishness played an equally huge role in their persecution. And that's sort of our first example, if you like, of this idea of in-betweenness, that Kurdish safety or autonomy dips up and down depending on the context and the power plays that are happening around them. Okay, so let's talk about how history has described the Kurds themselves. There's an essay I read by Mehrdad Izadi who outlines some of the issues faced in Kurdish historiography. 
One of the biggest issues with Kurdish state building has been a lack of uniformed or centralised history making, so the lack of research or funding available from the few Kurdish universities there are. I mean, just as a side note, there's also the issue of war and constant state persecution that the Kurds have faced in the modern era. So, you know, the idea of having um, a Kurdish-run university in Turkey or in Syria before the civil war or in Iran is just, it's just not possible. Um, but regardless of that, Kurds as a whole haven't taken the uniformed approach to a state history and that's one root cause of why they're sh currently struggling. Now, Izadi writes on that whilst that there's an abundance of sources and material out there, it's the research where Kurds lack credibility in. And this is two-hand. Firstly, um, larger populations like the Arabs or the Turks, for instance, have grappled more quickly with using their past to secure and embellish the present. And also, the dominance of the Arabic language in the region following the 7th and 8th century meant that in becoming the lingua franca, anyone who wrote in Arabic, as was custom at the time, was also deemed Arab. And the notion of defining ethnicity differs from time period to time period, so does language, skin colour, um, land claims or ancestry, they all play really key roles in this idea of you know, marking out your, your national character. I think the example of Salahuddin Ayyubi is quite a good one. Um, so Salahuddin's identity became quite politicised um, for a while, up to the 90s, when the Ba'athists in Iraq, who were Arab fascists, had decided that everything and everyone who was written about in books had to be in Arab. Um, now that shifted away, and the consensus now is that he was ethnically Kurdish. But having said that, in the 1170s, there was a greater emphasis played on him being a religious and military commander and a ruler, as opposed to our present-day you know, way of thinking of, I'm a Kurd who plans to unite all the Kurds. That wasn't the case at the time. Nevertheless, though, his background still played an important role um, in his position, and undoubtedly, the rise of the Ayyubis, which was um, the dynasty that he founded, brought the Kurds great wealth and prestige. Now, the rise of Islam during this time period led to a great wealth of knowledge being produced by various Islamic scholars, and a lot of our knowledge on the Kurds is owed to them. Um, Ibn Khaldun, for example, is one of them. Uh, he mentions the Kurds in his book, The Introduction, or the Muqaddimah, and he refers to them, the Kurds, as a race of people alongside other nations such as the Bedouins and the Turkmens. Now, just more generally speaking, between the 10th and 11th century, Arab historiography um, does use the word Kurd or Kurdishness, but more as an implicit category, defined in many ways against the implicit category of being Arab or Bedouin and so on. Ibn Khaldun goes on to write that later in the 12th century, when the Mongol invasion had reached this area, the havoc led to an exodus of Kurds fleeing the region, and the Khalif al-Murtadi, who was the leader of the Almohad dynasty of North Africa at the time, reportedly gave refuge to two Kurdish tribes into western Algeria, um, known as the Lawin and the Badin tribes. So if we trace the scholarship of this time, the Kurds are referenced within the narrations of what was going on um, in their present day. Now I'm going to continue with 
sort of tracing the Kurdish identity through the years, but I'm going to start to add in the competing ideas um, around who the Kurds are and their ancestry in particular, because it has a lot of relevance and links to current political, um, shall we say, arguments um, of the present day. So the Kurdish language is said to have a lot of similarities with Persian and with Pashto as well. And I remember for some time that I'd hear this story or this idea that the Kurds were originally their ancestries linked to a people called the Medes. And the Medes are an ancient civilization that historians date to be around the 11th century BC. So we're really going back in time here. Now, the story goes that the Medes were a group of people, and then from this civilization, three more groups emerged, more concrete, known as one, the Kurds, two, the Persians, and three, the Pashtun. Now, reading a bit deeper will tell that actually it's not as clear-cut um, as it might seem. So the belief that the Medes are the ancestors of the Kurds admittedly has roots in the current political era. Now, the PKK, who I mentioned earlier, they are the most well-known and controversial of the Kurdish insurgent groups. I'll discuss in more detail who they are later in the season because it's I don't want to um, sort of paintbrush them as they've gone through a lot of changes in recent years. But anyway, all you have to know for now is that they're really controversial in terms of their methods and beliefs. Now, the second thing you have to know is that the Kurdish identity in the 20th century um, came under attack, particularly after World War I, with the new countries of Turkey, Syria and Iraq. Now, Turkey, for instance, founded in 1920 or 21, I think, um, up until the 90s, any element of being Kurdish was illegal and banned. So you weren't allowed to, to call yourself a Kurd, you weren't allowed to give your children Kurdish names, you couldn't speak your language, you couldn't set up a Kurdish school. So your whole identity, your ethnicity was illegal. And because of that, the Turkish state claimed that anybody who was Kurdish, because obviously they knew that Kurds existed, it was, and it was just deeply rooted in, in, in xenophobia, they would claim that the Kurds were nomadic Turks or they were mountainous Turkish people who had lost their way. So in a similar way to how the Turkish state um, embarked on its process of nation building by othering other ethnicities in the country by preventing any sort of ethnic variation, in the 70s the Kurds started to fight back. Um, and that was when the PKK, this insurgent group, started to um, sort of form together. Now, in response then, they started to say, well, actually, no, we're not nomadic Turks, we're not mountainous peoples, um, sorry, sorry, mountainous Turkish peoples, we are actually ancestrally from the Medes um, sort of family tree, if you like. And there's two levels to this claim, so let's break it down. There's one level of folklore and one level of historiography as well. Now, on a folklore or cultural basis, the Kurds celebrate Nowruz, um, which is the traditional New Year, in March every year, held on the spring equinox. Now, this process, sorry, or, or this celebration, is rooted in the myth of a legendary blacksmith called Kawa the blacksmith, who defeated the evil ruling king known as Zuhak, um, who was an Assyrian king. Now, the king had prevented 
the season of spring because of his persecution of the Kurds. And so when Coward the blacksmith, this Kurdish warrior, defeated the king, spring returned to Kurdistan. On a history basis, historians date this event to around 612 BC, where the Medes defeated the Assyrian Empire. Now, the whole sort of story between the Medes and the Assyrians, um, I'd say is quite lukewarm at best. So the different books that I read had different variations of the same event. Um, so overall, historians find it quite difficult to pin down, you know, how true or how um, in terms of the reality of what happened um, actually was. Nevertheless, though, the historian Jueda does write that the area where this ancient fighting took place um, between the Medes and the Assyrians is where the Kurds live today. So the PKK, they use this myth to draw parallels um, between the Turkish state and the Assyrian Empire. Now, PKK or not, the ancestral origins of the Kurds is hotly debated because of their current situation um, in the Middle East and their identity and being able to almost certify in a way that yes I belong here and yes I am of this particular ethnic group um, is so crucial for their survival. I have to say that I personally dislike the idea of going through thousands of years worth of history just to be able to tell a group of people who are persecuting you whether or not you belong here. Um, the idea of a millennia worth of history or ancestry rooting someone's current or present day identity is insane, but we fall into the trap anyway because through nationalism and statehood of the current day, we need to prove our link to this piece of land. Um, now, regardless of, of if ancestry is always contested, there are interesting finds about the Kurdish presence in this region. So in 1923, I think, um, the historian G.R. Driver wrote that the Kurds is actually, in terms of its name, it's an, eth it's an ethonym of the word Karda or Karda, which was found on a Sumerian uh, clay tablets in the third millennium BC, which he then linked to a people, a group of people who were living in Lake Van, which is now in Turkish Kurdistan. There's also the name of Karduchi, which is a, was sort of written um, in a famous piece of work by the ancient Greek scholar and writer known as Xenophon. Um, his book is called Anabesis, and it's, it was composed, I think, in around 370 or, yeah, 360 or 70 BC. Um, at this time, the ancient Greeks were being led by Cyrus the Great, and they were fighting the Persians. Now, Xenophon wrote that the Karduchi are a mountainous people with warlike qualities. Um, and he also, I think, used the word gurd, G-U-R-D, which is also meant to mean sort of hero um, in, the, in the ancient world. Other researchers argue that the Kurds emerged as a set group later on, so into the 7th century, after the Arab conquest or the Muslim conquest of Kurdistan and into Persia. So onto the Muslims then, um, it was really at the beginning of the Rashidun Caliphate, um, which is when Kurds first came into contact with the new religion. Um, just as a side note, the Rashidun Caliphate can be described as sort of the first Islamic empire, 
but when I use the word empire, don't attach European empire connotations to the word. It's a different type of empire. Um, now that lasted from around 632 to 660. Um, now in his book, um, Asad al-Ghaba, the famous Muslim scholar Ibn Athir, writes that Jaban al-Kurdi and Maymun al-Kurdi were some of the first notable Kurds to convert to Islam, and subsequently more and more Kurds followed suit. However, this was not en masse, obviously it took time, and many Kurdish tribes continued to pay allegiance to the other power on their eastern side at the time, who, which were the Persian Sassanids. Now, it wasn't until the rule of the Caliph Umar عن, that Kurds began to convert on a larger scale. Major battles took place between the Muslims and the Persian Empire on Kurdish grounds, um, because the Persians, or the Sassanids at the time, they used Kurdish land as their military basis. So again, we have the idea of in-betweenness working again, the Kurds finding themselves straddling two competing empires, the nascent Islamic one, and then the Persian Sassanids on their east as well. Now, one of the first major battles that took place between these two um, factions, if you like, was at the Battle of Jalona in 637 AD, also known as the Battle of Gulala in Kurdish. Um, so, so this is where reportedly Muslim soldiers first encountered the Sassanid soldiers in, it was on Kurdish lands. They were victorious, the Muslims won, and then after a succession of further victories, more and more Kurds began to convert. This then continues into the Umayyad dynasty, the next group of Muslim rulers. Now the Umayyads were very careful about um, sort of who to pick to rule over the Kurdish lands within Armenia, Azerbaijan and eastern Anatolia. Um, the last caliph, um, Marwan ibn Muhammad, was recorded to have worked quite closely with Kurdish allies and that Kurdish soldiers fought for him during the power struggles with the emerging Abbasids who were a competing um, rival dynasty. Under the Abbasids, again, um, many Kurds continued to hold quite high positions. Um, so one of the major generals was um, known as Mu'tamid al-Allah. He was quite an um, influential general for the Abbasids. And they also appointed the Kurdish Ali ibn Dawood al-Kurdi to become the leader or governor of Mosul. So let's skip forward to the 16th century. I can't not mention the, one of the most famous works that I'd love to get my hands on one day, known as the Sharif Nama. The Sharif Nama is perhaps the most important historical document um, for the Kurds, produced in 19, sorry, no, in 1596 by the ruler and um, scholar Sharif Han Bidlisi. Sharif Nama is classified as sort of the first comprehensive history of the Kurds as told by a Kurd um, himself. So it talks about the dynasties, the rulers, the tribes, the way the land is divided. Interestingly, um, Bidlisi himself, he categorizes the Kurds into four main groups, the Kurmanji, the Kalhur, the Lurs and the Gurani. And his description of their geography more or less matches with the present-day Kurdish claims to land. So the Khuzestan region of southwest Iran, parts of Azerbaijan and Diyarbakir in Turkey. The next major um, historical event to influence the Kurds was the Ottoman Empire. So by the 16th century, the Ottomans had risen to power and within that the Kurdish lands um, came under Ottoman sovereignty. In 1514, the Ottomans launched the Battle of Jaldaran in North Kurdistan, um, 
and the enemy at this time was actually not the Kurds, <laughs> it was the Persian Safavids. Now the Ottomans won this battle and the Treaty of Zohab, Z-O-H-A-B, um, in 1639 divided Kurdish lands formally from east to west along the Zagros Mountains. This boundary remained in place until World War I. Um, now, even though they lost sort of full sovereignty of their lands, as a reward for their support, the Kurdish support um, for the Ottomans during their battle against the Persians, the Kurds were granted a high degree of autonomy. Um, indeed, in the beginning of the Ottoman rule, um, it was fairly decentralised, um, and so a lot of the Kurds were able to keep their powers and to keep their autonomy. And so what you had emerging was a lot of Kurdish principalities. However, this all begins to change in the 19th century, particularly during and after the Tanzimat reforms where rule became more centralised, tax demands became greater, and there's a greater scrutiny and harsher military conscription, which led to a number of Kurdish rebellions and periods of unrest between the principalities and the Ottoman rulers. Again, I describe the experience of the Kurds under the Ottomans as in-betweenness, but one that was intrinsically quite a beneficial at first, and then over time, when the Ottomans began to decline and um, their power changes led to a ripple effect, a negative ripple effect on their different ethnicities, like, like the Kurds, it became more negative or more detrimental for them. Finally, this brings us to the end of the, of the episode. So after World War One, the Ottoman Empire collapses, the sick man of Europe is no more. Um, and there's three major treaties which deeply impact not just the Kurds actually, but the whole of the Middle East. Um, and these three treaties will be the focus of our next episode. Uh, they were called Sevre, Lausanne and the Sykes-Picot Agreement as well. Um, so I want to dedicate a whole episode to those treaties and discuss their terms, but also to, to discuss how Kurds view them, because there's a lot of blame attached in general towards the European powers who were the victorious ones after World War One, and really how we can move past that and use it more to our advantage than to our disadvantage. So, in summary then, the distinctiveness of Kurds is not up for debate anymore, as it was only, I don't know, one or two decades ago. Wherever you stand on the spectrum of ancestry going back however many years, the theories and the research, they all point and refer to the same geography, and the interpretations of a political Kurdistan is well defined in the minds of many Kurds. And more importantly, Kurdish identity is not up for debate anymore because of their current persecution at the hands of the four states which they were divided into after World War I. Um, the conversation of the Kurds in the Middle East needs to be more focused on the destination. How can the Kurds gather in a proper, holistic and meaningful way to approach and secure the range of solutions that they need, whether that's statehood, um, economic sustainability, internal security, um, you know, building alliances and taking care of social and welfare needs. I don't see a way of Kurds being able to survive until they have a country of their own. The ethnic cleansing of the Kurds in the four respective states of Syria, Turkey, Iran and Iraq have been a slow and steady burn since the 1920s and 30s. 
at the end of the day, if people feel secure and safe, if they have food on the table, they have opportunities to go to work and go to school and speak their own language, humans tend to get on with life. However, these four states, which I've just mentioned, chose blatantly um, and actively on a policy of persecution to base their policies on racism and cleansing. And so now they have to deal with insurgency and Kurdish resistance. So before I say the word persecution one more time, I'm going to stop myself now and wrap up some of the key threads of this episode. So the point of this opening one was just to showcase and highlight as many different examples as I could um, to show the impact Kurds have made on this area of the of the world, but also vice versa, how other major events have impacted them. And just to show that the historical and present day reality tells us that the Kurds are quite intrinsic to the peace and security of the Middle East, to stop seeing them um, as minor actors or as guerrilla fighter insurgents who came out of nowhere, but rather that their grievances stem from long-standing issues of you know, being marginalised. I'd say that first and foremost, Kurds themselves have to reckon with their own history. They need to be able to study it and present it in a proper and um, sort of self-respected way in the same way that all other nations do and how that leads to nation building. And they have to take those steps as well towards healing fractures within the community, both regionally and nationally, which we'll discuss um, later on in season two. I hope this gave you a good overall intro, if you like, um, of who the Kurds are, and I'm quite excited to go through this new season and touch on as many different aspects and examples of Kurdish history and agency. For now, this was your host, Mr. Amin. Thank you so much for listening.